Welcome to all of you, particularly to Ben. <laughs> My name's Anne Chisholm. I'm the current chair of the Royal Society of Literature, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to Speaking of Love, some readings for Valentine's Eve, the final event of this week's LSE Literary Festival. I should like to thank the organisers of this year's festival for inviting the RSL back and giving us this opportunity to reinforce the link established last year. I also want to thank our General Secretary, Maggie Ferguson, for organising our end of the proceedings, and above all, to welcome and thank the four distinguished fellows of the RSL who have very generously agreed to come here on a cold, wet night to read and reflect on the warm, bright, troubling, irresistible topic of love. I know that it's because of them that you're all here, so I shall be very brief. They are, all four, among our best and most acclaimed writers. What's going to happen is this. I shall introduce them to you in turn, and they will then introduce and read the passages each has chosen. All we asked them to do was to choose favourite extracts, poetry or prose, on the topic of love, written either by themselves or others. We felt that a completely free hand, unguided or organised in any way, would result in the most fascinating and revealing insights possible into the emotional and intellectual landscape of these four highly gifted but very different writers. After the readings, there will be some discussion among them, and then we hope there will be time for questions or contributions from the audience. And then, I understand, there will be drinks and jazz outside in the adjoining rooms. And now, I turn to our first reader, Dame Antonia Byatt, a writer of immense distinction and achievement, whose first novel was published in 1964, whose novel Possession won the Booker Prize in 1990, and whose latest book, the Booker shortlisted The Children's Book, came out last year. One critic described it as alive with imaginative energy, another as a sexy book, full of erotic longing patchily fulfilled. She is as erudite as she is imaginatively gifted, and I can't wait to hear what she has chosen to read. with reading um, a small part of a narrative by myself and then if I don't overrun I have various poems I hope to read to you afterwards um, the bit of prose is from a story I wrote called The Conjugial Angel which is part of Angels and Insects and is about the life of Emily Tennyson the sister of Alfred Lord Tennyson who at the age of 19 was engaged to marry Arthur Henry Hallam, who almost immediately, very, very young, fell dead of an aneurysm. Um, and in due course, Tennyson wrote one of the greatest poems in the language, In Memoriam. Poor Emily was expected to remain a perpetual virgin and widow. And for 11 years, she did this. And then rather surprisingly, um, she met a lieutenant from the Navy called Richard Jesse. Um, two things are known about Richard Jesse. One is that he was quite incredibly brave and afraid of nothing. And the other is that he never stopped talking. <laughs> um, and this is him talking 
to her. I don't mean to embarrass you, Miss Tennyson, at dinner. I didn't truly. I said what came into my head. I do that. It causes me no end of trouble in my life, always in scrapes and talking myself out of muddles I need never have got into. But it was true what I said. I do most greatly admire you, and I am not given to complimenting ladies. I don't see many, and to tell you the truth, none has ever much interested me before. But you do. You do interest me. Thank you, Mr. Jesse. Now, don't look all prim and confused now. I didn't mean to put you in a Twitter. Why are simple things always such an intricate muddle, I wonder? I wanted to tell you simply, I do admire the way you have overcome your great grief. I fear I have not, nor shall not. Not overcome, exactly, that was the wrong word. No, but how much you are alive and, and vital, Miss Tennyson, it is an inspiration. Thank you. You don't seem to understand. I didn't mean to speak so much so soon, but there I go, rushing on, like the north wind, can't stop. Have you ever felt that someone was to do with you when you saw them? Quite simply, just that, that there are people all over the place with noses like dough buttons and eyes like currants and other people like Roman busts, you know, and then suddenly you see a face that's alive for you, and you know it's to do with you, that that person is a part of your life. Have you ever felt that? Once, said Emily, once, I believe, had she? They stood in the street and looked at each other. Richard's bland, amiable brow was trumpled with his puzzled attempt to make her share what was perfectly plain to him. He made an awkward movement with his arms, half a salute, half the prelude to enfolding her, and drew back. I'm crowding you, Miss Tennyson. I'll go now. I hope you'll talk later and not hold my awkwardness against me. If I'm right, we do have things to say to each other, and if I'm not, it will become clear enough. No bad feelings, won't it? So I'll bid you goodbye for the present, Miss Tennyson. It's been a pleasure. And he strode off very fast down the street, leaving her not knowing whether to laugh or cry. And later on, he talks to her again in the drawing room. I should say it's in the drawing room of the house of Mr. Hallam, who was the father of Arthur Henry Hallam. So the situation is further faintly embarrassing. <coughs> I have something to ask you, said Richard Jesse. I don't find it easy to see you alone, and I am oppressed by the idea that the ladies of the house might return at any moment. So I will be brief. Don't laugh. I am able to be brief when it's a question of urgent action. I can be quick enough when a ship's going aground or a squall's setting in. A curious metaphor, said Miss Tennyson, looking at him with her head on one side. Are we going aground or in danger of shipwreck? I hope not. There I go again. You know what I have to say, don't you? I want to ask you to be my wife. No, don't rush into speaking. I know what you have to say, too. But I do believe you could be happy with me, and I know I could with you. You are not a comfortable person, I wouldn't say that. You are all full of fits and starts and little dramas, and I don't believe you have all that much common sense to be truthful. <laughs> but, you know, um, I think we go well together. I think we are what each other needs. If a member of the Tennyson family can bear to hear a proposal from anyone who can commit that gawky kind of sentence. Maladroit, he said, finding a better word. She opened her mouth. No, he said, don't speak. <laughs> I know you are going to say no, and I can't bear it. Think, please, consider it. Think, and you will see it, will do, capitally. 
Oh, please, Miss Tennyson, think of me. Emily was touched. She had a prepared little speech, truthful as far as she had thought it out, about how a great love burns one out. She even had a line of dumb, that after one such love can love no more. She believed it. Richard Jesse put one great hand over her two hands and one finger of the other to her lips. Don't speak, he said. She could not lift her hands to move his finger. When she tried to move her lips to speak, she found she was in some way kissing the large forefinger. She opened her eyes very fiercely and stared into his, intent, blue, determined. She wanted to say, you look like a pirate boarding a brig, but couldn't speak. She shook her head angrily from side to side. Her hair rustled silky on her shoulders. He picked up a tress of it with the offending hand. Lovely, he said, the most beautiful I've ever seen. You are very foolish, said Emily, shaken and disturbed. I am over 30 years old. I am not a young girl. My days of loving are over. I am resigned to a single life. I am, I am unable to feel. I don't think so. All those years, I have felt like a stone. I am worn out with feeling. I do not want to feel any more. I don't think so. I know you're not a young girl. You're older than I am. We both know that. No need beating about the bush. Young girls are boring, fizzing kinds of things, all froth and fuss and romantic notions, whereas you are a real woman, Miss Tennyson. You ought to be a wife. You aren't cut out to be a maiden aunt. I know. I've watched you ever so sharply. I know you think you ought, but you haven't thought of me, have you? You didn't expect me, did you? No, said Emily in a small voice. <laughs> I didn't. Something black and cruel in her wanted to puncture his precarious self-confidence, to slap him down, to mock, to hurt. And something else wanted to make him happy, to protect him from just such savagery of which he seemed so blithely unaware. She said, My heart was sealed up, Mr. Jesse, when Arthur died. I loved him completely and lost him. That is my history. There can be no more for me as for him. I don't mind your having loved him, said Richard Jesse. If you loved him so well, it only proves you can love well and be faithful, as I know I can, though untested as yet. We will not forget him, Miss Tennyson, if you marry me. The love can persist. I honour you. I truly honour you for its depth and constancy. Maybe you only want to marry me because of that, because of him. Maybe you see me as an object of pity. I know you are kind. I, I do know you are kind. I don't require to be rescued. Damn it, it isn't rescue. Can't you see that? I told you, if you would listen. I know we could be comfortable together. I know it in my bones and my heart and liver and all my nerve endings. Why can't I get you to hear the plain truth? She was silent. He said, I want so much to take you in my arms. I know I could make you feel the rightness of it. These damn chairs and all these fusty books, they aren't right. I should like to be able to walk along the beach with you and listen to the girls. You'd feel it then. I'm not in my usual state of mind. I've been sleeping badly working up to this, to this. It's worse than a battle, any day. I can't, she said in a whisper. If you can't, if you are quite sure you can't, say it again and I'll go, now this minute, and never come back, never see you again. Do you understand? Do you believe me? I mean it. If you can really tell me you won't, you can't, you don't wish to, 
I'll go. It will be that hard. I won't wish to see you again. Do you hear me? Don't shout, Mr. Jesse. They'll all come. What do they matter? He mistakenly demanded. Emily, half pleased nevertheless at his daring, rose abruptly to her feet, a preliminary perhaps to bidding him farewell. But she said nothing and went nowhere. She stood mute. He took a step towards her. He was taller even than her tall brothers and darkly handsome as they were too, and put his large hands on her shoulders. Then he lifted her from the ground, holding her against his shirt, laying his face gently against hers. You are choking me. I cannot breathe. Mr. Jesse, I cannot breathe. Answer me now. Put me down. I will. I cannot resist you, I see. Put me down. Restore me to equilibrium. I should like to roar like a lion, he said, quietly enough. But that can come later. We may do as we like when we are married. I don't know about that, said Emily on her feet again with sudden caution. <laughs> um, three poems, I think. Um, I, my two favourite poets of love are John Donne and Robert Graves. So I shall read one poem by each of them, both short. Um, and then one very short poem by William Blake. I noticed when I started um, choosing my poems that they all seemed to be slightly about the menace of love, which was an unconscious set of choices. This is a poem called A Lecture Upon the Shadow. Stand still, and I will read to thee a lecture, love, in love's philosophy. These three hours that we have spent walking here, two shadows went along with us, which we ourselves produced. But now the sun is just above our head, we do those shadows tread, and to brave clearness all things are reduced. So whilst our infant loves did grow, disguises did, and shadows flow from us and our care. But now, it is not so. That love hath not attained the highest degree, which is still diligent, lest others see. Except our loves at this noon stay, we shall new shadows make, the other way. As the first were made to blind others, these which come behind will work upon ourselves and blind our eyes. If our loves faint, and westwardly decline. To me, thou, falsely, thine, and I to thee, mine actions shall disguise. The morning shadows wear away, but these grow longer all the day. But, oh, love's day is short if love decay. Love is a growing or full constant light, and his first minute Afternoon is night. That's one of my favourite lines of love poetry. Um, this, I think, this is Robert Graves. This, I think, is my favourite poem about love anywhere. And I don't think I've ever read it aloud. 
O love, be fed with apples while you may, and feel the sun, and go in royal array, a smiling innocent on the heavenly causeway. Though in what listening horror for the cry that soars in outer blackness dismally, the dumb blind beast, the paranoiac fury. Be warm, enjoy the season, lift your head, exquisite in the pulse of tainted blood, that shivering glory not to be despised. Take your delight in momentariness. Walk between dark and dark, a shining space with the grave's narrowness, but not its peace. And finally, William Blake. That's not the right note to end on. Um, but it seemed to be the right poem. Um, never seek to tell thy love, love that never told can be. For the gentle wind does move silently, invisibly. I told my love, I told my love, I told her all my heart. Trembling, cold, in ghastly fears, ah, she doth depart. Soon as she was gone from me, a traveller came by. Silently, invisibly, he took her with a sigh. is the acclaimed travel writer and novelist Colin Thubron, who also happens to be, as of last month, the new president of the Royal Society of Literature. As you will see if you read the new edition of our RSL journal, copies of which you will find outside, along with information about the Society and how to join it, and about some of our future events, which are open to everyone and include um, a session on memoir, with Will Fines and Maggie G and Candia McWilliam and then talks by Ian Kewan and David Hare later in the year. As you will see if you look at it, Colin, who has written something in that issue of the magazine, has suspended his nomadic and elusive tendencies on our behalf, which is very good news for us. His prize-winning travel books about the Middle East, Russia and Central Asia most recently Shadows of the Silk Road, have alternated with six novels. His latest, To the Last City, set in Peru, was called Haunting, Passionate and Magnificently Fearless. As a writer, he is as fascinated by the dangerous territory of the heart as by any risky territorial journey. So what has he chosen to read? Oops. On Lady Antonia's pen. And you Damon. Which isn't mine, however. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me again? Yeah. I'll have to put up with it. Um, after Dame Antonia, this, um, this threatens to be a little bit like uh, not exactly sublime to ridiculous, but um, not quite on the same elevated level. Because I find it um, almost impossible to take any excerpts from my novels at all. Um, they're so deeply embedded in their contexts. 
Um, this comes from a book called A Cruel Madness, um, which starts fairly normally, even a little comically, um, and then recounts the increasingly dangerous obsession of a vulnerable and neurotic young schoolmaster. As the novel progresses, in fact, it even becomes doubtful as to whether his narrative is true at all, whether the woman that he obsesses about even exists. But it starts as him going um, to a local clinic with a sprained ligament. So this is, if you like, um, love as a kind of strange coup de food. The waiting room for afternoon surgery emptied while I glanced through magazines and read leaflets about baby care and VD. Dr. Hughes Davis, I remembered, was a caustic middle-aged practitioner who usually dismissed or belittled his patient's pain. I imagined he'd been too long in his profession, like me. But when I entered the surgery, he wasn't there. Behind his desk sat a woman doctor, young. She looked up. I don't really know how to go on writing this. The language is so soiled. She was beautiful. Yet I don't think it happened in me at once. Two minutes perhaps went by, two minutes in which I was slightly numbed, not feeling or thinking anything, just looking at her. Perhaps it was some kind of bewitched recognition. She asked my name while her fingers flickered through a card index. I wasn't there. So she stood and momentarily turned her back, reaching up for a file. If she hadn't done that, I might have survived. But instead, she left me with a picture of such sensuous shock that I was still staring when she turned round. The tension of her tiptoe stance had lifted her calves into high polished ovals and pulled her white skin to close beneath the knee. In their flat shoes, the white veined feet looked impossibly sensitized, their bones taut and fine like violin strings. Yet these legs were nobody's cliché of perfection, not a model's legs, but absolutely individual. At once athletic, high-strung and tender, the kind of calves you long to smooth and kiss. Ah, here's your card. She picked it from the file between slender fingers, the echo of those astonishing and now invisible legs. Dr. Hughes Davis is away sick at the moment. What can I do for you? I've gone and twisted my knee. Um, it's probably nothing much. My voice didn't seem to have caught up with my feelings. It sounded extraordinarily matter-of-fact. May I look at it, please? I tried to pull up the leg of my jeans, but they were too narrow. I had to slide them off and stood in my socks and shirt tails. I felt gangling and foolish. My own legs looked spidery, flecked in their dark hairs, and seemed to taper feebly at the ankles. Even the knee was not heroically disfigured, only a little puffed and discoloured, slightly pathetic. How much weight can you put on it? The next moment she was crouched in front of me, and I was looking down to where her chestnut hair grew shining at the roots, before it tumbled into curls, which she'd gathered in severely with a ribbon behind. And as her, finger, as her fingers probed the knee, does that hurt? No, does this? I was unable to tell her if anything hurt, anything but some breathless core in me and couldn't take my eyes from her fingers. Their flesh was spare and tight, the whole hand endlessly attenuated and graceful, even its nails pearly thin, so that the touch and slide of each finger over the coarseness of my knee was separate and delicate, like a host of brown moths. The voice below me said, you've torn a medial ligament. She stood up, it's not serious. You'll need an elastic bandage and some ointment, otherwise just rest. If it hasn't gone down in a week, come back and we'll consider physiotherapy. The next moment, 
One of those hands was holding out a prescription order while the other rang a bell for the following patient. She gave me a smile of dismissal, but it was only like a seal on everything that had happened before. It irradiated what was already torturingly beautiful, as if she'd turned up the voltage on some inner dynamo of catastrophic power. Out in the high street, in the weak March sun, I stared through shop windows without understanding anything that was there. Even when objects were labelled best cooking beef or fresh coffee bags, they remained ungraspable. The VDM, uh, the VIDM, the bookshops, probably record and bookshops, shows how old this book is, confronted me simply with the idea that listening and reading were no longer relevant, but had been preparations for something else. Every morning for a week afterwards, on the instant of waking, I would know that something was different before its memory flooded in. This moment always amazed me. It was like waking with a strange face on the neighbouring pillow. I half expected it not to be there. Yes, in some part of me, I was expecting the feeling to vanish as randomly and suddenly as it had arrived. For these few days, the thing resembled a luxurious game. I didn't even know her name. I invented hundreds for her, but none seemed right. People coalesce around their names, but she, nameless, only grew more mysterious. There's a primitive belief that without a name, you don't exist. By the end of the week, the game had become frightening. She'd rooted herself in my mind, flowered in its dark like a narcotic mushroom. There was nothing there but her, nameless her. I built her with the knowledge of imagination. She was unmarried and solitary. She took her holidays on the continent alone. She... What was happening to me? I pondered excuses for going back to the clinic. I watched in irritation as my swollen knees subsided. I had hopes of an inflamed ankle ligament, but it came to nothing. I thought of claiming a cartilaginous sprain, but I had rubbed in her prescribed ointment with such religious tenderness and the joint look, that the joint looked perfectly normal. It, was, it wasn't until I was inside the surgery that I almost panicked. When I picked up a magazine, it trembled. My face had gone bloodless and I had a sensation of ants trickling over my scalp. I was dressed with planned casualness and where my hair was receding, I'd combed it forward in two easy-looking strands. Yet when my turn came, my legs felt stiff and light. They might have been made for somebody else. I'd prepared a lie about knee cartridges. It evaporated as I fumbled through the doorway. But when I came in, the room seemed cold. It was filled only with a pallid light from nowhere in particular, and by Dr. Hughes Davis at his desk. <laughs> My second piece speaks for itself, I think. Um, it comes from Julian Barnes' book, A History of the World, in ten and a half chapters. And any of you who remember this book will probably remember that the half chapter is a kind of parenthetical piece um, about a more settled love than the one I've just recounted. Let me tell you something about her. It's that middle stretch of the night when the curtains leak no light, the only street noise is the grizzle of a returning Romeo and the birds haven't begun their routine yet cheering business. She's lying on her side, turned away from me. I can't see her in the dark but from the hushed swell of her breathing, I could draw you a map of her body. When she's happy, she can sleep for hours in the same position. I've watched over her in all those sewery parts of the night and can testify that she doesn't move. 
It could be just down to good digestion and calm dreams, of course, but I take it as a sign of happiness. Our nights are different. She falls asleep like someone yielding to the gentle tug of a warm tide and floats with confidence till morning. I fall asleep more grudgingly, thrashing up the waves, either reluctant to let a good day depart or still bitching about a bad one. Different currents run through our spells of unconsciousness. Every so often, I find myself catapulted out of bed with fear of time and death, panic at the approaching void, feet on the floor, head in hands. I shout a useless and disappointingly uneloquent, no, 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 as I wake. Then she has to stroke the horror away from me, like sluicing down a dog that's come back from a dirty river. Less less often, it's her sleep that's broken by a scream, and my turn to move across to her in a sweat of protectiveness. I'm starkly awake, and she delivers to me through sleepy lips the cause of her outcry. A very large beetle, she will say, as if she wouldn't have bothered me about a smaller one. Or, the steps were slippery, or merely, which strikes me as cryptic to the point of tautology, something nasty. (laughs) Then, having expelled this damp toad, this handful of gutter muck from her system, she sighs and returns to a purge sleep. I lie awake, clutching a slimy amphibian, shifting a handful of sodden detritus from hand to hand, alarmed and admiring. I'm not claiming grander dreams, by the way. Sleep democratizes fear. The terror of a lost shoe or mistrain are as great here as those of a guerrilla attack or a nuclear war. I admire her because she's got this job of sleeping that we all have to do every night, ceaselessly, until we die, much better worked out than I have. She handles it like a sophisticated traveller, unthreatened by a new airport. Whereas I lie there in the night with an expired passport, pushing a baggage trolley with a squeaking wheel across to the wrong carousel. Anyway, she's asleep, turned away from me on her side. The usual stratagems and repositioning have failed to induce narcosis in me, so I decide to settle myself against the soft zigzag of her body. As I move and start to nestle my shin against a calf whose muscles are loosened by sleep, she senses what I'm doing, and without waking, reaches up with her left hand and pulls the hair off her shoulders on the top of her head, leaving me her bare nape to nestle in. Each time she does this, I feel a shudder of love at the exactness of this sleeping courtesy. My eyes prickle with tears, and I have to stop myself from waking her up to remind her of my love. At that moment, unconsciously, she's touched some secret fulcrum of my feelings for her. She doesn't know, of course, I've never told her this tiny, precise pleasure of the night, though I'm telling her now, I suppose. You think she's really awake when she does it? I suppose it could sound like a conscious courtesy, an agreeable gesture, but hardly one denoting that love has roots below the gum of consciousness. You're right to be sceptical. We should be indulgent only to a certain point with lovers, whose vanities rival those of politicians. Still, I can offer further proof. Her hair falls, you see, to her shoulders. But a few years ago, when they promised us the summer heat would last for months, she had it cut short. Her nape was bare for kissing all day long. And in the dark, when we lay beneath a single sheet, and I gave her for Calabrian sweat, when the middle stretch of the night was shorter, but still hard to get through, then, as I turned towards that loose S beside me, she would, with a soft murmur, try to lift the lost hair 
from the back of her neck. Thank you. Simpson's turn. Helen Simpson's award-winning short stories are quite simply in a class of her own. From her first collection, Four Bare Legs in a Bed, which came out in 1990, to the most recent, Constitutional, in 2007, she's been acclaimed and celebrated as a writer who combines sharp humour, sharp-eyed humour and tenderness, whose deceptively light touch is based on deep literary knowledge and technical skill. She has a new collection, in-flight entertainment, not geography boy, which we put by mistake on the slide, coming out in May. No one writes better than Helen about the pleasures and trials of love, maternal as well as romantic, and between friends as well as lovers. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to read a passage from a book called Love by Stondhal, who is, of course, rather better known for his novels, um, The Red and the Black and The Charter House of Palmer. Love is not a novel, but an analytical treatise on love, a series of short philosophical essays, anecdotal sketches, disguised diary entries and other fragments. It was Stondhal's own favourite of all his books. I first read it when I was a teenager, and what has stayed with me is the description of falling in love as a process of crystallisation. But I'll stop describing now and read my favourite passage. And I ought to mention I've abridged it, um, also that there's a recent new edition published by Hesperus, but for some reason it cuts this bit out. So I'm reading from my old Penguin Classics edition, translated by... Gilbert and Suzanne Sale. At the salt mines of Hallin, near Salzburg, the miners throw a leafless wintry branch into one of the abandoned workings. Two or three months later, through the effect of the waters saturated with salt, which soak the branch and then let it dry as they recede, the miners find it covered with a shining deposit of crystals. The tiniest twigs, no bigger than a tomtit's claw, are encrusted with an infinity of little crystals, scintillating and dazzling. The original little branch is no longer recognisable. It has become a child's plaything, very pretty to see. When the sun is shining and the air is perfectly dry, the miners of Halin seize the opportunity of offering these diamond-studded branches to travellers preparing to go down the mine. And then I've, I've cut. The narrator then describes how he and a group of mainly Italian friends, including a certain Madame Gerardi, decide to visit this salt mine. While we were getting ready, which took some time, I amused myself by watching what was happening to the thoughts of a handsome, fair-haired young officer of the Bavarian Light Infantry. We'd just made the acquaintance of this likeable young man, who spoke French and was most useful in making us understood by the German peasants. 
The young officer, although handsome, was no conceited fool. On the contrary, he appeared to be a man of intelligence, as Madame Girardi found out. I could see the officer visibly falling in love with the charming Italian woman, while she, entirely taken up with the impending adventure, was a thousand miles from any thought of pleasing, and even further from thoughts of being attracted to anyone. Soon I was surprised at the strange confidences uttered unawares by the Bavarian officer. He was so engrossed in her celestial features that I noticed he often spoke without knowing what he was saying or to whom he was saying it. I, I signalled to Madame Girardi, who, but for me, would have missed the spectacle. What struck me was the undertone of madness which grew moment by moment in the discourse of the officer. Each moment he saw in this woman perfections more and more invisible to my eyes. Each moment what he said bore less resemblance to the woman he was beginning to love. I thought to myself, she is certainly no more than a pretext for all the raptures of this poor German. For example, he began to praise Madame Girardi's hand, which had been curiously marked by smallpox in her childhood and had remained very pocked and rather brown. How shall I explain what I can see, I wondered. Where shall I find a comparison to illustrate my thought? Just at that moment, Madame Girardi was toying with the pretty branch covered with sparkling diamonds which the miners had given her. The sun was shining and the little salt prisms glittered like the finest diamonds in a brightly lit ballroom. The Bavarian officer, who had chanced to obtain a branch of even stranger brilliance, suggested that Madame Girardi should exchange with him. She consented, and on receiving her branch, he pressed it to his heart with so comical a gesture that all the Italians began to laugh. In his agitation, the officer paid Madame Girardi the most exaggerated and heartfelt compliments. As I had taken him under my wing, I attempted to justify the folly of his praises. I told her, the effect produced on this young man by the nobility of your Italian features and those eyes of which he has never seen the like is precisely similar to the effect of crystallization upon that little branch of hornbeam you hold in your hand and which you think so pretty. Stripped of its leaves by winter, it was certainly anything but dazzling until the crystallization of the salt covered its black twigs with such a multitude of shining diamonds that only here and there can one still see the twigs as they really are. And what are you trying to deduce from that, said Madame Girardi? that this branch is a faithful representation of yourself as viewed by the imagination of this young officer. Implying, my dear sir, that you perceive just the same difference between what I really am and the way this charming young man sees me as between a little dried up stick of hornbeam and the pretty spray of diamonds the miners gave me. Madame, the young officer is discovering qualities in you that we, who have long been your friends, have never seen. For example, we could never perceive an air of tender and compassionate kindness in you. <laughs> Since this young man is a German, the most important quality in a woman for him is kindness. So he immediately reads into your features an expression of kindness. If he were English, he would see in you the aristocratic and ladylike mien of a duchess. Ah, now I understand, she said. From the moment you begin to be interested in a woman, you no longer see her as she really is, but as it suits you to see her. You're comparing the flattering illusions created by this nascent interest with the pretty diamonds which hide the leafless branch of hornbeam. 
And that's why I pursued a lover's conversation sounds so absurd to sensible people who know nothing of the phenomenon called crystallisation. Oh, you call it crystallisation, she laughed. I've since found this image of crystallisation also works very well for imaginative work generally. It's certainly behind how anything good ever gets written, I think. Anyway, we've probably now heard enough about romantic love. Um, as Mary Wollstonecraft wrote, love from its very nature must be transitory. To seek for a secret that would render it constant would be a wild search for the philosopher's stone or the great panacea, and the discovery would be equally useless or rather pernicious to mankind. The most holy bond of society is friendship. So here's a very short, very short story from me about love as friendship. Charm for a friend with a lump. First, let me take a piece of chalk and draw a circle round you so you're safe. There. Now I'll stand guard, keeping a weather eye open for anything threatening, and we can catch up with each other while we wait. Have a glance through this garden catalogue, if you would. I need your help in choosing what to plant this spring. I thought the little yellow peace vine tomatoes so sweet and sharp, along with Gardener's Delight and Tiger Tom's. But there's a lot to be said for Marmond, too. I'll have a word with the powers that be, the health czar. Ban parabens. I'll keep away the spotted snakes with double tongue. I'll be like cobweb and mustard seed in the play. I'll make sure the beetles black approach not near. By naming the bad things, I'll haul them up into the light and shrivel their power over you. Hence, malignant tumour, hence. Carcinoma, come not here. Then I thought I'd try those strike you round courgettes this year, Ron Denise. You have to pick them as soon as they reach the size of tennis balls. You mustn't let them get any bigger than that or they won't be worth eating. They'll swell and grow as big as footballs if you let them. As for fruit, what do you think of conference pears? Or the catalogue recommends the Invincible, a very hardy variety which crops heavily and blooms twice a year. Let's not even start on those predictable but useless paths which lead to nowhere. If only I hadn't smoked at 15, if only there hadn't been that betrayal, if only I hadn't spent so much time putting up with the insupportable. Why ever did I think endurance was a virtue? Didn't I want to stay alive? If only I hadn't sipped wine or drunk water from plastic bottles. If only I hadn't gone jogging the day Chernobyl exploded. Oh, give it a rest. We live in the world as it is. We all have to breathe its contagious fogs. It's wrong of them to claim it must somehow be our own fault when our health is under attack. Let's get back to the catalogue. Help me choose some soft fruit. If I had more space, I might try gooseberries again, now there's this new cultivar that cheats American blight. But it's probably wiser to add to the existing blackcurrant patch. Here's a new one. Titania. Large fruit and good flavour. Crops very heavily over a long period. Good resistance to mildew and rust. We're advised to build up an arsenal of elixir if we want to strengthen our own resistance. We're told we ought to call in light boxes, amulets, echinacea drops and oily fish. We should fix on organic, free-range, grass-fed meat, Japanese green tea and a daily dose of turmeric. 
And if we're really serious about protecting ourselves, we must avoid dry cleaners, getting fat, aluminium, insecticides. Shun trans fats as the devil's food. Forswear polystyrene cups. We've got to fight shy of white bread, a sedentary lifestyle, perfume and anger if we truly want, truly want to save ourselves. And even if we tick off every item on the list, there's absolutely no guarantee that it'll lengthen our span by a single day. On your last birthday, with your natural dislike of being reminded of the passing years, we skirted round the subject for a while. I asked what you'd be doing to celebrate. You scoffed. You said you'd rather forget about it. Do you remember? Then I reached down into myself and managed to say, you should celebrate. Your birthday should be celebrated because the world's a better place with you in it. May you continue to pile on the years, but with more pleasure from now on. In time, may you embrace fallen arches and age spots. Decades from now, may your joints creak and your ears hiss. May your crow's feet laugh back into the mirror at your quivering dewlaps. Nobody in their right mind looks at an old oak tree growing in strength and richness and thinks, you'll be dead soon. <laughs> they just admire and draw strength from its example. May you keep your hair on and your eyebrows in place. May you never have to wear a hat indoors. May you and your other half tuck two centuries under your belts between you. And then, like the old couple in the tale, when some kind god in disguise grants you a wish, may you go together, hand in hand, in an instant. I'm willing you to be well. Do you hear me? If there does happen to be some disorder in your blood, I'm like Canute. I'll stay here by you and turn the tide. You're my persona grata. And if they find that some weed or canker has gained hold after all, Japanese knotweed it might be, that ruthless invader and ignorer of boundaries, well then we'll deal with it. There are powerful new weed killers these days and they work. Doctors are like gardeners in the way they know how to distinguish between healthy growth and uncontrollable proliferation. There's a fine line and what I am casting a spell for is that nothing inside you has stepped over it. In my spell, we are dreaming our way forward through the year into the green and white of May and on into the deep green lily ponds of June. The lushness of June, its new heat and subdued glitter of excitement at dusk. Its scent and roses, that's what we'll aim for. I do love roses, their scent and beauty. Particularly my souvenir du Dr. Germain and the thorny pink eglantine beside the vegetable patch. We'll have a party there this Midsummer's Eve, up by the tomato plants and ranks of cosletis, just the two of us. Let's write it in our diaries now. I can't spare you. You're indispensable. We'll have a party and pledge your health by moonlight on the one night of the year when plants consumed or seeded have magical powers. There is a great deal of talk about the benefits of mistletoe extract and so on, but I'm not convinced. You can spend a lot of time and energy chasing magic potions when you might be better occupied weaving your own spell over the future. En route, sleep will help. Everyone has their own private walled garden at night where they can prune their troubles and dream change into some sort of shape. 
That's what I'm trying to say. A dream can be a transformer, as well as providing a margin or grassy bank where you can rest while the outside world goes on. Active dreaming, which is what I would prescribe, can be a powerful form of enchantment. You're not out of the woods yet, that's clear. But a little while from now, I want you to walk out of the woods and into the dune garden. Leave the black bats hanging upside down. They'll stay asleep. While we wait for summer, let's choose to be patient and hopeful. And soon, not really long from now at all, I aim to smile at you and say, come into the garden, friend of my heart. novelist, poet, and magical storyteller Ben Okri, whose book The Famished Road, set in Nigeria where his family originates, won the Booker Prize in 1991 and has been called a modern classic, a novel of shocking power and freshness. Since then, in all his books, essays, stories, and poems, as well as novels, he's continued to surprise his readers, never settling for the ordinary, using myth, dreams, and symbols to explore and expand the boundaries of fiction and the connections between the material and the spiritual world. He looks always for new ways of telling stories. So how will he choose to celebrate for us the oldest story in the world, the story of love? It's um, a real pleasure to be here, and um, I've loved the variety of love dreams that we've had this evening. I'm going to follow Antonia and begin with um, a reading from one of my books called Starbook, short, short reading. Then I'm going to read um, a poem, a short poem, and I'm going to read um, a prose poem, and then I'm going to read my favorite. So... We'll try and do this in only a lot of time. Sometimes, in her dreams, he took her hand and journeyed with her through all the happiest places in the universe, among the stars of ecstasy and delight and to some of their ancient homelands in faraway galaxies. He showed her their palaces of pleasure, their castles of love, their cities of happiness. When he was not speaking to her in dreams, he arranged anonymous surprises for her in the waking hours. Children brought her bouquets of rare feathers. Strange children brought her rich, brocaded cloth. When she was musing by the river, an old man gave her a single flower that no one had ever seen before or since. He said the flower came from the stars and that he was a messenger of one that could not be named. 
The maiden accepted the flower hesitantly and smelt its fragrance. At that moment, something happened in her heart. She was not sure what it was, but suddenly she felt things more clearly. The fragrance altered the wind. She heard the faintest echo of a melody. The river was calm. The old man had turned into the faintest mists of gold fading in the distance of the green cloud of the forest. The flower would never wilt, never die, but sometimes it became invisible and was lost, and it would reappear again, depending on how she was feeling. There were other odd gifts that he caused to come her way. One day, a beautiful young girl brought the maiden a rare ruby. She claimed it came from the far heavens and she was a messenger from one who could not be named. Another beautiful young girl with a dazzling smile and a bright countenance brought her a pure white stone, not of this earth, and she repeated the magic words of the other messengers. A child dressed in gold brought her a white bowl. When later the maiden ate from the bowl, she noticed how well she felt, how contented. Then she noticed that the bowl somehow enriched her food. And in eating little, she was not only satisfied quicker, but that she experienced an unusual sense of nourishment. These gifts puzzled and frightened her a little, but she kept her puzzlement and her fear to herself. She kept her silence. But more gifts of astonishment came to her and left her. From one day to another, reeling as if in a strange moonlit intoxication. A child dressed in heavenly blue brought her a handful of shining ashes and with enchanted words poured it into the maiden's palms. Then came special messengers, all seven of them, all beautiful, all dressed in white, repeating love verses from one who should not be named, but whose love came from the stars. By now the maiden was bewildered, then curious, then amazed, then enchanted, then fascinated by these gifts. She was so curious about this personage who should not be named that she followed the messengers and was astonished when, with a cry and a flash of light in the air, they vanished as soon as they entered the forest. Then, slowly, her love found focus. When the messengers stopped coming, when she didn't hear from them, nor receive any more gifts or verses from them again, she found that she missed the mystery quite deeply. Then she found that she had fallen in love with one who was unknown, and with one she would never know. The first poem is a recent one. The memory of an eternal afternoon spent in a square 
under the shade of a sleeping church with one who would not dance but would love in secret ways that became fire of flowers in the blood I remember, I dream, I foresee much that marauding warriors bring with them burning villages, ravishing have much in common with my tranquil and fretful desires regarding you. Will they sleep drunk and wild in my heart? They will ever roam the world like Attila the Hun himself in his clear, wild glory, a shadow in the sun, brazen and rough and patient through the changing landscapes. Nothing escapes his will. Translate all that into serenity and love and tenderness and song and smiling eyes and jokes and silence that heals and a mind resilient that will endure for all that great hidden river of love and you will have the calculus in spirit of what I feel for you. Um, final short poem from me. If I can find it. It's called And If You Should Leave Me. And if you should leave me, I would say that the ghost of Cassandra has passed through my eyes. I would say that the stars in their malice merely light up the sky to stretch my torment. And that the waves crash on the shores to bring salt stings on my face. For you reconnect me with all the lights of the sky and the salt of the waves and the myths in the air and with your passing the evening would become too dark to dream in and the morning too bright now this is a, the tricky part for me um, the poems I'm going to read are not really poems they're very they're fragments and I've chosen Sappho. Um, I'm kind of guessing that you all know about Sappho, so I'm not going to talk too long about her. I'm just going to read these fragments, which I want you to magnify in your minds, because they're fragments. I confess I love that which caresses me. I believe love has his share in the sun's brilliance and virtue. It's no use, mother dear. I can't finish my weaving. You may blame Aphrodite. Soft as she is, she has almost killed me with love for that boy. This is a mysterious one. When I saw Eros on his way down from heaven, 
He wore a soldier's cloak dyed purple. This is a passionate one. Woman about a guy. He is more than a hero. He is a god in my eyes. The man who is allowed to sit beside you. He who listens intimately to the sweet murmur of your voice. The enticing laughter that makes my own heart beat fast. If I meet you suddenly, I can't speak. My tongue is broken. A thin flame runs under my skin. Seeing nothing, hearing only my own ears drumming, I drip with sweat. Trembling shakes my body, and I turn paler than dry grass. At such times, death isn't far from me. Passionately. This is to an army wife in Sardis. I'll just read the first few lines of this, because it's amazing. Some say a cavalry corps. Some say infantry. Some again will maintain that the swift oars of our fleet are the finest sight on dark earth. But I say that whatever one loves is. I say that whatever one loves is. Another strange, short, mysterious one. Without warning, as a whirlwind swoops on an oak, love shakes my heart. I always feel that when I read that. And I'll just read another strange one. With his venom, irresistible and bittersweet, that loosener of limbs, love, reptile-like, strikes me down. And I'll just end with um, an eternal love question, I guess. Another fragment. Tell me, out of all mankind, whom do you love better than me? <laughs> Antonia, will you 
We yeah. just think I have anything. No, no, everything seemed rather complete. Everything everybody read was sort of closed in itself. And it wasn't like an academic conversation where you could raise a question. The only answer would be to read another poem or another bit of prose. So I, I have really no questions except to say how very much I enjoyed everybody's reading and how very much I agree with Ben about the variety of it, which I thought was interesting. I suppose what struck me was, possibly inevitably, there's more about the dangers, embarrassments, perils, pangs of love than there was about the pleasure and power, except possibly for the suffering. Um, I mean, I wondered if you all think that particularly Anglo-Saxon writers find it rather hard just to celebrate love have to come at it rather obliquely, writing about its difficulties and complexity. You didn't bother Lawrence. That's true. <laughs> no, I, I think um, happiness in fiction is rather boring. Um, we could hardly find a novel that really um, celebrates it. It's always about conflict, isn't it, in some way? Mm. And, um, and movement and uh, what is changing. Um, I, I think that's uh, part of the problem too about writing about happy love that the language seems so contaminated it's been done so badly so much um, that's another of the writer's problems isn't it I mean I don't know if you've found that but I think none of us have written absolute, absolutely as it were taken it head on and always wants to write a bit obliquely Yes, because it's, it's just too easy to fall into cliché. It's, mm. it's the worst subject for cliché of the lot. Yes, I mean, we place such value on it mm. in our lives um, that we expect exactly. something magnificent. If we were writing about somebody walking down the street, um, it wouldn't matter much how it was written comparatively, but we want everything from this experience. And, uh, so when you're asked to write about love, you, uh, an Anglo-Saxon goes, oh, love, mm. yeah. um, mm -hmm. is it. Yeah. Yes, I think um, I was wondering uh, when people memorise poems, do are they nearly always about love? I think possibly they are. Uh, love poetry, and mm -hmm. also for what purpose? Uh, has anybody ever in the audience had a poem quoted at them? Because once uh, somebody yes. once said to me to his coy mistress, all the way through, just like that. Oh. <laughs> you still know him. <laughs> 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 Colin, you kind of make me think of um, paraphrasing um, Tolstoy's um, beginning of um, Anna Karenin. All happy loves are alike, um, but all unhappy loves are unique unto themselves. Um, and I, I think the reason why that is the case is because... Um, of something that has come through in all of our readings, which is the relationship between love and imagination. For some reason, love instantly triggers the imaginative powers in us, whether for good or for ill. Um, and that's why I tend to have, when one speaks of love in, in literature, the first part of love, the passionate, mad love that you're writing about in your piece, makes me come up with an epigram that you know, love is a chaos taking place in a paradise or, or a paradise taking place in a chaos 
but I can't add anything to that. <laughs> I wonder if, if is anyone, would anyone in the audience like to ask a question or make a contribution? Yes, in the middle. You, sir. Yes. I think a microphone is coming to you. Thank you all very much. That was lovely. I was curious, really, about some of your choices. It was lovely to hear you read your own work. That was marvellous. But in terms of other choices, of the people you chose, how much of it is inflected by a certain familiarity? For example, De, De Montagna, you chose all British writers, for example, for your others. And Miss um, um, Simpson, you were adventurous and went across the channel. But uh, I was... Um, Mr. Oakley went to Safford. That was interesting. But I'm just curious about that, and if that's something you could possibly speak about a little, I'd be interested in general. Um, well, I, I could have read to you in French or German, but that might simply have annoyed you. Um, <laughs> um, and in, or Italian, for that matter. Um, but... Um, I think when one thinks very closely about what one really cares about, one thinks in one's own language. Um, um, or one thinks of the strangers who recognize things in other languages. But what I picked, apart from myself, were those poems that have stuck with me since my early youth, all three of which and the other two or three I didn't read, you know, um, changed me a little bit when I first read them. Um, I should also say they were all poems I discovered for myself and was not taught at school. Um, I think the thing I love most in the world is the English language. And so it seemed right to read in English this evening. Hello. Hello. Um, hmm. I, I was hesitant to to read something in translation, I think. Certainly anything as delicate as, as a love piece. Um, I think that would be my first inhibition. I'd feel I wasn't sure I was giving the real thing. Um, that, that would be my first reaction. I think it's fluke, actually, in my case. I might have read something terrible to you in Russian, but I didn't. Um, I, I, it was just an automatic, automatic choice. There's such a, a wide variety of choice that's open to one when you think about it. Um, and I wanted to settle personally on something rather familiar and domestic, in the, as in the case of Julian Barnes, which I think is um, a very touching piece. Um, and so it happened almost at random. It certainly wasn't a choice against crossing the, the Channel or the Atlantic. Well, I agree with Antonio what you said, but um, I also wanted to read something that possibly people weren't as familiar with because um, that Stondahl book isn't very well known and it's, it's a very peculiar book actually but, um, and it's some, also as you say it's what, it's, it's what formed you when you were young it's what I, I remember seeing that in a bookshelf and it was either that or Cosmopolitan at the time and I was sort of thinking what view would I take on love and I thought I'd rather be instructed by uh, actually very strange as well so there's no instruction to be had really but um, yes I think what you read when you're young on love is, is important it forms you yeah, partly it probably forms the way you love also yes. yeah. well um, 
I have to disagree a little bit with, uh, with Colin about translation, obviously. Um, because for one very simple reason, I, t I take his point, absolutely. It's just um, I also believe, unfortunately, that, you know, um, literature is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a human homeland. So I take the literature of the whole world as my homeland. And, and, and so if I can't read in the original language, I'm quite happy to settle with the best translations that are available. Otherwise, I'm just going to be... <sighs> In, in, intolerably uh, limited in, 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 my, in my reading and in the emotions that I can feel from literature. I chose Sappho because, this, this may sound strange to you, um, because she's very African. Um, there's a, a, an extraordinary, terse, passionate quality about, about her writing. It just reminded me of, 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 of growing up in Nigeria. There's a, there's a poem of hers where she says, you know, um, Someone is dying. A young man is dying. Um, Adonis is dying. What, what, what should we, what should we do? These are women singing this, and the women reply, "You know, rend your tunics and beat your breasts, maiden. Just what else are you going to do?" Um, and that, that passionate quality, that expressive quality of, of, of love is for me very, very African, as well as the, the, the terseness of it um, that comes across. So it just reminded me of those. Uh, the hot landscapes of my childhood in, in some way. So it connects the intimacy theme that you've been hearing here. Is there another question? Yes, the lady there. I just wanted to thank you all so much for everything you contributed. Um, I, I was asked why was I coming here. I'm a writer and a poet and I'm starting to get things published. And I said, well, you know, I've spent my life writing about metaphysics and uh, all kinds of philosophy and never about love because I'm not very interested in that. And I thought maybe I should do it, you know, now in my old age. Um, and um, then I realized how much I love. But I, I've been writing um, a poem about a cat that died called the cat attending to its death and, and you know there's difficulty but the point is that anything we touch through art we love uh, I'm writing about a homeless woman and in, in a poetical format and the love it's so basically it's so human it's not Valentine's and probably you know not appropriate but how, I don't, how blessed we are to have so many ways of, of loving I guess. It's Thank not a you. question, it's just um, the range is so big and I Thank hadn't realized it. Thanks for the reading and the intimate sharing. Just to consult the panel in a weird way. Could you, could you speak yeah, to the mic, just, please? I was thanking the panel uh, for their reading and conveying the intimacy. And just to consult the panel in a weird way, which is when you're in love, or when one is in love, you seem to, there seems to be not enough words to describe and convey and explain and illuminate what you go through. If you were to, ask, to be asked tonight, just now, thinking of love, what would be that one word that you'd be telling me? One, was it, was, one what, what would be the one word? One that word, comes to mind when you think of love. One word that comes to mind when you think of love. Tonight, here, now, on then. the 30th. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Margareta. Antonia. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I had two lines that I wanted to quote and hadn't time for. So I quote them and pick one word out of it. <laughs> but it isn't quite true. Um, we looked, we loved, and therewith instantly death became terrible to you and me. And I mean, this is in fact a psychological truth. You don't realize that death exists until you love something, and then you're afraid. So I say death. <laughs> Um, I, I think transformation it's, it's imagination it's that process where the loved object is dipped into the imagination and there's an accretion something happens in private something mysterious and it's real that's the strange thing people say you know well, being in love isn't real of course it's real it's, it's, it's like music or something, it's, it's there. Uh, um, enchantment, yes, I, uh, transformation though, yes, enchantment. I, I, I can't, can't choose. Ben. Well, Heather, you, ne you nearly stole my word, but I'll choose another one. I, I, w I, w I would have chosen enchantment, but since Helen has partly chosen that, I'd, I'd go for magnification, um, because it seems to me that's what love does. You, you're just this big and you fall in love or you feel love and suddenly you are, you're, you're magnified and the magnification isn't a physical magnification it's um, emotional, it's, it's also spiritual you, I, I, I'm perpetually amazed at, at how many hard-headed friends of mine suddenly acquire spiritual language when they fall in love <laughs> Especially my English friends. <laughs> I think possibly now we ought to... I thought you were going to choose a word. Oh, no, no, I, I don't have to choose a word. <laughs> <laughs> That's the chair's, the chair's privilege. But I thought I... I was, when I was thinking about this evening, um, I found myself looking again at Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's interesting that nobody has chosen anything from Shakespeare, although, of course, Helen's story was strongly connected to, to Midsummer Night's Dream. So I'll just leave you with four lines of Shakespeare, three lines of Shakespeare. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. So I think on that note, from the seething brains and the cool reason of our panel. Thank you all so much for that. It was extraordinary in its diversity. Thank you. Thank you.